welcome to the Visceral Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Schneider. Every two weeks on this podcast, I talk with voice specialists, manual therapists, health specialists, psychotherapists, movement practitioners, and professional voice users about voice science, function, medication, movement, puberty and aging, and everything in between. I am on a quest not only to become a better manual therapist, but also to learn everything I can about the living, breathing body and its intricate connection to the voice. This podcast documents the continuation of my learning and my experience as a professional singer, a nutritional consultant, and a manual therapist. Join me every two weeks as we strive to provide current, knowledgeable, creative, and compassionate information to help restore, regain, and create happiness and success in your vocal journey. In this episode, I interview Mary Saunders Barton. Mary is a Penn State professor emeritus currently residing in New York, where she maintains a musical theater voice studio for professional performers. While at Penn State, she served as head of voice instruction for the BFA in musical theater and created an MFA in musical theater voice pedagogy to meet the growing demand for voice teachers who specialize in vernacular technique. Mary has co-authored a book, Cross Training in the Voice Studio, A Balancing Act, with colleague Norman Spivey. She is the chair of the American Academy of Teachers of Singing. Mary is the 2018 recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the New Contemporary Commercial Vocal Pedagogy Institute at Shenandoah University. Here you are, my conversation with Mary Saunders Barton. Hi, Mary. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Christine. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure. So we met just this year at the Music Theater Educators Association. And it was such a pleasure to meet you because I had heard so much about you from my colleagues and my friends. It's been such a joy getting to know you a little better. Yeah, the same same is true for me. And I know you've actually met one and worked with one of my colleagues uh, and one of my now former graduates from the pedagogy program at Penn State, C.J. Greer. Yes. So it's good to have this community sort of enlarging around us and feel that we're all sharing information as we go forward. Yes. I love it. And so before we really dive in, do you mind sharing a little bit about your journey with singing and then what led you to teach? Absolutely. Sure. Of course, you will appreciate this, Christine, because in our conversation recently... I realized it was absolutely true for you, too. Mm. I took a very crookedy path to where I find myself today. (laughs) Looking back, actually, I see how all the experiences I had did prepare me for what I'm doing, but I had no idea at the time. I think this is true for a lot of people. I was just following my personal passions. I grew up in 1950s suburban Morristown, New Jersey, which is 30 miles from New York City. We had a huge family, five kids, music everywhere. I sang constantly, and I played piano by ear, which is which made reading later difficult. <laughs> My parents encouraged me musically, and I am very grateful for that. And she, they provided me with piano lessons when I was in elementary school, and then voice lessons when I was about 13 or 14. When I was nine years old, my mother encouraged me to join the children's choir at the Presbyterian Church in Marstown, and I stayed there in that choir throughout high school. I loved, loved, loved singing in harmony with friends and my siblings on long road trips. Do you like to do that? Oh, yes. 
We definitely. Oh my God. I mean, I just remember this so well. I have to say, <laughs> my love affair with musical theater began when I was eight years old. And my mother took me to see Mary Martin and Peter Pan on Broadway. Wow. We had seats. I know, right? We had seats in the center orchestra. And when Peter flew over us and threw fairy dust on our heads, that was it for me. <laughs> I, w- I was. <laughs> you were in love. <laughs> I was completely hooked. Actually, mm. Captain Hooked, right? I yes. remember dancing around that, the living room after that. I was jumping from couch to couch. You know that song from Title of Show way back to then? Do you know I don't. Uh, okay, it's all about wanting to go back to the feeling you had when you were, when this was everything to you. So mm-hmm. I remember jumping from couch to couch with the hi-fi blaring, and I was singing along with Julie Andrews as Eliza and Guinevere and Leslie Caron, do you remember her, as Gigi, mm-hmm. and Anna Maria Alberghetti as Lily in Carnival. These were all the golden age voices. This yes. was the 1950s, though. And my parents in the era I grew up in and in in my world would have considered the arts strictly avocational. Mm. So they encouraged me to an academic career because women taught, right? This is before Me Too. Women, this is what you did. In high school, I fell in love with French language and literature, which I'm still in love with unapologetically. Mm. And I pursued <laughs> that at Mount Holyoke College and in grad school at Middlebury. You may know that Middlebury has this amazing foreign language program for teachers. So that took me to study in Paris in 1969. So this is the crookedy path, I'm telling you. Wow. So serendipitously, while I was in Paris, a friend of a friend told me about this wonderful teacher and renowned baritone by the name of Pierre Bernac, who worked with lots of international students, and we decided, okay, let's go audition for him (laughs) at his studio on La Rue de la Motte Piquet. And we were greeted at the door by this tall, courtly, elegant man. (laughs) I was a total babe in the woods. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing and what an incredible opportunity this was for me. I sang a foray art song, a présent rêve, and I remember he responded with a twinkle. Ah, la cocotte, n'est-ce pas? Elle est musicienne. Elle est enfant de cœur. Meaning that he thought I was this little, pure child voice, which sort of tells me that's exactly what I was. Again, <laughs> looking back, I realized that the kindness and compassion of Pierre Bernac back in those days And the way in which he communicated was as important to me as the technical information that I learned from him. And I am still grateful for that influence on my teaching. Mm. So anyway, I came back from Paris with a degree in French. And obviously, the course of action would be to get a job teaching French. So I ended up securing work at the Professional Children's School near Lincoln Center in New York, which catered to children in the performing arts. So, interestingly, I taught French (laughs) to American Ballet Theater School dancers and young TV actors and Broadway performers. So I like to say that I really caught the performing bug from those kids. Wow. Right? I would see them at the unemployment line later on, and they would say, Madam Saunders! 
<laughs> so I was married by then, and, and so my husband encouraged me to get into a musical theater class at the Herbert. Have you heard of the Herbert Berghoff Studios in the West Village? Yes. Yeah. So at the time, I mean, you're still going way back here. There was no way to have access to all the training for performance under one roof the way we do now. Everything was a la carte. So mm. I met friends in those classes then who were further along the performing path than I was, and they inspired me so much, and they continue to inspire me. They're my, they're my friends in the performing arts still after all those years. So I had a performing career then that lasted 15 years, and it included a lot of regional work, playing all those golden age ingenues that I have been playing in my living room. And finally, <laughs> I got to Broadway in the 70s. So teaching... Because I do remember your question. <laughs> Teaching began quite naturally as actor friends of mine would ask me to help them with their auditions. I realized I had a feel for, the, for, for voices, and I loved, loved working with singers. Talk about coming through the back door, though. I'd never had any formal pedagogical training, and I was flying by the seat of my pants. Wow. So by the early 80s, I began to have babies. And the focus shifted to teaching because I could do it right in my apartment. Yes. I, I mean, it's, what's better than that? I had a few wonderful friends and mentors during this time, but voice science was not really on our radar the way it is now. And mm -hmm. you know this, access to information was nowhere near what it is today. I didn't even have a computer until I began to work at Penn State in 1999. This is still hard for me to compute this, to compute that. But I can now appreciate, this is what I appreciate, that there was a tremendous value for me in empirical pedagogy. I was learning what my students needed from them. I still need to pay attention to that. Even knowing more about mechanics, I need to pay attention to learning what they need. By the 1990s, I was living north of the city with two boys, teaching in my home and commuting to a studio in Manhattan. This sounds like your life a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and teaching two days a week at the Hart School uh, mm. in, in Hartford in their BFA program. So then a call came suddenly from Penn State asking whether I would be interested in applying for a position as their first musical theater specialist. Wow. And this, this is amazing because there were really not that many people who specialized in musical theater teaching in universities back then. And even now, they're still catching up. It seems somehow yeah. providential, this whole thing, as though it was exactly where I had been heading all the time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that you just say, okay, I really was going in a direction. I just didn't know it. So anyway, we <laughs> packed up our kids, 12 and 17, bound for State College, Pennsylvania, and my years at Penn State, I have to say, were a time of immense professional growth, personal growth too, but certainly professional, and any recognition I have acquired as a teacher, I feel I owe to the environment of generosity and openness that we all shared, and this has taught me the biggest lesson of my life. This was the opportunity of a lifetime to learn. So my new colleague, Norman Spivey, took a leap of faith, <laughs> a big one, and he asked me to teach and perform at a Nats Winter Workshop, Music, Theater, and the Belt Voice in New York City. And this was only my, this was my second year at Penn State. 
So uh, I don't think I really knew enough to be intimidated in that setting. I just, it was sort of like, <laughs> everything so was like, this is like a little, little bit scary. Um, I met all these teachers had been around and knew much more than I knew. My sessions, though, were called Sing Out Louise. And they were all about introducing classical singers to a Broadway belt. Also, it just turns out serendipitously once again that Paul Gemignani, the conductor who had a session planned, had had to cancel out. So I was suddenly teaching so much. I had so many, so much more time allotted to me. It was just a great experience. And I also performed a cabaretal. This is what C.J. Greer calls cabaretal, which is, you know, you do some, a little of this and a little of that. But mostly it was the beginnings of the concept of how belting fits into the big picture of singing. A cabaretal. So the combination of cabaret uh-huh. and recital. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love it. I like it too. So, and I was, I was not, are you a member of the National Association of Teachers of Singing, Christine? I'm not. Anyway, no. I, for me as a voice teacher, it's a no brainer. So I didn't even really know what it was until I got to Penn State. I don't think I did. So I joined that organization and it introduced me to this much, much, much broader community of colleagues. And it set me onto the path I am still on today. And so you mentioned yep. teaching at Penn State. And while you were at Penn State, you created an MFA program in music theater voice pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Can you, first, can you actually explain what pedagogy is in case we have some listeners who don't yeah. know? Pedagogy is teaching. So you codify principles of an approach to teaching something and you call that your pedagogy. And can you tell us a little bit about the voice pedagogy program that you helped create or that you created and why you think that it's important to offer music theater pedagogy programs at universities? Sure. When I began teaching at Penn State, I was really the only musical theater specialist. I joined a classical faculty mm-hmm. and they, they handed me 24 musical theater majors. I had a heart attack. I thought, oh my God, I just don't know how I can do all of that. But it was a blessing for me because it was a built-in laboratory, mm-hmm. once again, to continue observing how principles played out in teaching. And I just learned from that going forward. My classical colleagues, they had actually, they had all been the ones teaching these students, these musical theater students, before I arrived on the scene. And they had required two classical art songs Every semester, we have things at the ends of semesters called juries or demos, some people call them, but they are just an opportunity for students to basically show what they've been learning over the semester, and they get graded on it. So my colleagues had said, one of these songs should be in English and one in Italian, and then they will do a number of other required songs that that the teacher will choose with them. So it seemed to me a very good idea mm-hmm. to stretch these kids. So I got that idea from them, them technically, and this was exactly the seed that bloomed into cross-training 13 years down the road. Mm. It's right there. There was a wonderful camaraderie among us. We liked each other. We were eager to learn from each other. And Penn State was always quick to get behind new initiatives. Penn State was great. So it was mm. a perfect set to set up here for, to, for us to try something new. So after my first 10 years teaching there, my husband, who has all the ideas in our family, 
I, I joke because he gets the ideas and then I do the work. <laughs> <laughs> you move it into action. Yeah, right? So he said, hmm, why don't you consider creating some kind of graduate program for teachers to carry on the teaching that you are doing there, that you all are doing? Mm -hmm. So as the head of the classical pedagogy degree, our, my friend Norman Spivey, with whom I wrote the book, was excited about the idea of creating something that would target musical theater voice teaching. And we began to think about what that could look like. There was, to us, obviously, and we had done the research, a deficit in musical theater pedagogy at the collegiate level. As far as we knew, nothing of the kind existed. And it turns out to have been true. So your MFA program at Penn State was the first. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And the fact is, it was a theater degree which is different too, because there were plenty of MM degrees where classical performers could develop pedagogy skills and teach and graduate and even teach musical theater. But this was the one, this was different because it was targeting techniques specific to musical theater performers. So um, New York City musical theater teachers are always, in my history anyway, in my experience, worked in independent silos and I had done that for years with very little sense of community. I think it's still a little bit true there. There was not a really sense of shared endeavor in training Broadway singers. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a fool's paradise, and you found out sort of by luck how to survive vocally. The field was evolving mm -hmm. rapidly, and we knew that. And vocal demands, you know this, were increasingly challenging with all those new styles of singing. So it seemed really in incredibly important to respond to the need for teachers who were technically prepared to train these performers. And, and I have to say this, who celebrated the art form, who loved it. Yes. You know, who just loved it. That is so wonderful. And you mentioned your book. Yeah. So you co-authored the book, Cross Training in the Voice Studio, A Balancing Act with Norman Spivey. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about cross-training the voice and give us some examples of cross-training? Sure. So the core philosophy of the cross-training program, as we developed it, is expressed in the phrase bel canto can belto, which you have heard, I'm sure, <laughs> which was, which I heard years before. I did not make that up. I wish I could say I had. And I am embarrassed to say I'm not exactly, I don't, I don't remember the name of the guy that I first heard it from, but I appreciated it so much that I adopted it as a catchphrase early on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been associated with my name, um, although I hear it in other settings. Um, it's very useful. When we were trying to design a curriculum, we, won't, we knew we wanted to maintain a yes and point of view mm. rather than either or. Our initial program proposal was going to be hybrid, including training in classical and musical theater vocal techniques. So our grad students were going to take one classical and one musical theater lesson every week. Mm -hmm. The actual degree would be in theater. However, because a musical theater is a dramatic art form, it's acting forward. My own philosophy is it should be related to opera in that sense because they are both dramatic art forms. And these graduates, our MFAs, would be teaching actors to sing. We launched the program in 2011, 
And our first candidate was Christy Turnbow, who was the perfect model for what we had envisioned. She had a beautifully balanced soprano mix, so she had her middle voice in terms of soprano taken care of. Mm -hmm. She was good to go for the other changes. She had professional experience as a golden age ingenue, had begun teaching privately in her home in Utah. But belting, she had not tried. She had not practiced integrating more chest past that sort of A or B flat four turn in in a soprano's voice. So we were going to immediately (laughs) challenge her to relinquish her comfort zone and open her heart and her voice to other sounds. So the essence of this approach is to strengthen every aspect of the instrument until all parts are in balance with each other. So what I feel, and I, I feel this really strongly, we want, I believe a teacher should walk the walk. It's just good. And experience the kind, it doesn't matter what level, just walk the walk. Experience the kind of vulnerability our students feel trying new things. So elevated Shakespearean speech. Christy did a Shakespeare play. A classical aria. Uh, Christy was in an opera. Contemporary pop belting. These are all part of a balanced vocal picture for musical theater. You've got to do it all. So Christy's final cabaretal <laughs> was a wonderful celebration of that journey. And it included diva laments, all the divas, right? From Lady of the Lake and Spamalot, big old belt, <laughs> Adelaide Guys and Dolls, Golden Age belt, character belt, Fiori Ligi, Comiscoio from Cosi Van Tutte, Cunagan, big, you know, coloratura aria. She did them all. So in an article for the Nats Journal, Christy Turnbow wrote, if you want to be a better belter, she still says this, you must embrace the opera singer within you. Mm-hmm. And that is sort of the essence of it. It doesn't mean you have to be brilliant at all of it, but opening your voice to it is what strengthens the instrument. It makes it possible to stay conditioned throughout a career. This is, this is sort of what we are hanging our hat on. So the pedagogy grads, grads are just great. You've met CJ. Um, we have grads in Nevada, Boston, Newport News, even Amsterdam in Europe. So they're spread all over the place. That is so great. And that's what we see in, in other areas of fitness, like yeah. say a running, you know, a marathon runner. Yeah. When I was training for marathons, I had to do a speed workout. I had to do a tempo yeah. run. I had to do a slower run so that you're working different musculature right. yes. <laughs> to assist with, even though I would never be a sprinter. Yeah. Right. If you want to find the heart of your voice, it's right. It's who you are. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's your body. Do you know Jenny Morton? I do. Osteopath? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. So I took a, a couple private sessions with her, and I loved when she said, what wears best wears evenly. Mm-hmm. And I yes. think it's so true vocally. If you just use one part of the instrument, other parts obviously <laughs> will just sort of, mm, okay, give up. So the best you can do for your voice and for your body is to keep it all in play. And obviously there are stages that we all have to acknowledge. I'm acknowledging now the menopausal stage. And I'm going to get into details of it, but you feel it. You feel, okay, this is changing. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to try to maintain the best use of the instrument now. 
what I have in this period of my life. And in the study of voice pedagogy, do you also then study voice science? Absolutely. And these, I think it's important for all voice teachers to have a factual grasp of the way the voice and body work together, communicating healthy, repeatable sounds. That means you do have to be curious and understand mechanics. I think our students deserve that too, right? And in any program, I think, where teachers are trained to teach singers in any style, I think it's important those teachers pursue information. Yes. And so in your opinion, you feel that voice teachers should have knowledge in voice science and voice pedagogy? I do. Yes. I absolutely. Any voice teacher should have a good grasp of the science that's available and a grasp of the way voice and body work together because this is a, a whole picture and body is a big part of that. So yes. contact with people like you, right? Contact with Ingo Tietze, Scott McCoy, all the leaders in the profession now, the science of voice are colleagues and they are available to us all the time. I am actually uh, the chair of an organization called the American Academy of Teachers of Singing, which I used to joke, you know, you had to be near death to be a member, but <laughs> we're taking <laughs> younger members now, but it's partly because you want, you, you're, you're dealing with people who have had careers and have things to share, you know, as a result of that. Yeah. So we are all about mentorship now, which is the, this is the initiative of the day is sharing and mentoring not only students, but also our own colleagues. It goes all directions. And we tried mm -hmm. to create that environment at Penn State too. Yes, so the answer to your question is I do. I think students deserve as much information as we can share with them. But I do think it's important not to confuse mechanics with artistry. That those are that the mechanics and understanding of mechanics serve the artist. Mm -hmm. I also think that, you know what I mean? I think students, I think singers entering the profession need to have information to stay healthy as they move forward when they are not supervised. So mm -hmm. that's that answers, you know, the whole idea of what we're responsible for with regard to conveying information they can take out with them. Mm -hmm. Carry their little suitcase out and say, I understand this. I understand voice-body interaction. I understand how to stay healthy, to, at least to the greatest extent possible, because we know there are problems that come up. And that's why we have people like Joan Later and our wonderful voice rehab people and you to help mm -hmm. when problems come up. Yeah. And so not only is it important for the voice teacher to have knowledge in anatomy and physiology and voice pedagogy and voice science, but also to educate their students so that they can go on That's right. and understand what they're doing in their own practice. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, you know, it's funny because I was asked a question recently about whether I use imagery. I said, oh, no, I'm just factual. I just want the facts. And my students teased me about it and said, are you kidding <laughs> you use images all the time. And then I thought, oh, God, that's true. I do. And I started making a list of them. And then I realized there is no problem with that 
And as a matter of fact, I think it's a good thing because that is also the uniqueness of any individual teacher is and how they bring forward something individual in their practice. But I think that what we need to know is that's based on fact. It's got to be based on yeah. fact. It can't be just, you can't, you know, sing blue. Although the image of blue might create something that would be physical in a response. Our, we owe our students understanding as much as we can convey. And yeah, with what's going on out there, they need to be able to take care of themselves, as you said. Yes. I love that you said blue because I was, I've been told in a lesson, I mean, a long time ago, not with Joan. <laughs> I've been told in a lesson, I, I want more purple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're giving me blue. I want more purple. And I'm like, I have no idea no what idea that means. No idea what purple's going to be. Right. <laughs> and so for me personally, when I started studying with Joan, who does speak about anatomy, <laughs> it made so much sense to me. Oh, you were so relieved. Yes. It was a map and it was a language right. that I understood and that we could speak the same language. And I knew what she was talking about and I knew what she was asking for. Yes. And that's so, so important. And that was so important for you because suddenly you felt validated in terms mm -hmm. of what communicates information. Then again, you might have a student that understands I need a little more blue. Different learning, <laughs> different learning. And images yeah. will occasionally yeah. work just fantastically. But I just think it's important for us to remember they're based on something physical, something real. So industry demands on the voice, they are constantly shifting, they're constantly evolving. What are some of the shifts that you have seen occur in the past decade or so? Well, clearly, let's just say past 15 years or so, Everybody knows that rock and pop style shows are on the rise dramatically. And mm -hmm. we have these wonderful, wonderful pedagogues of that style. Sherry Sanders certainly is a great rock pop specialist. So that's a reflection of changing cultural landscapes and how musical theater is a reflection of what's going on. Hip hop, obviously. Hamilton, perfect example of that, the way it just filters right into art, the art form. Our brand new graduates from musical theater, no longer do they have the luxury of specializing in one style if they want to work consistently. Mm -hmm. Now, it's true you can look at certain performers like our marvelous Kelly O'Hara or Audra McDonald and say, okay, they can pretty much stay where they are. Although even Kelly O'Hara has made a huge leap to, to try to accommodate to operatic singing authentically. And I saw her in Cosi Fantute, I think I told you. She was wonderful. But in terms of belting or these sort of more contemporary vernacular styles, she doesn't really uh, change her voice that much. She basically stays with a soprano mixed balance in her voice as opposed to shifting registration the way most of our singers are going to need to be able to do. So I celebrate this. I celebrate the diversity and the change. We have really terrific examples of this on Broadway, of singers performing, moving from one style to another. Did you see Jessie Mueller in Beautiful? Jessie Mueller, she was wonderful in that. And then she, did you see her as Julie Jordan in Carousel? I didn't. I've actually never seen Jessie Mueller on stage. So there you have it. But she was terrific in both and very authentic. 
if you go back further, like if we go back to the 70s with a show like Avita, which I think pretty much everybody sort of thinks of as that seminal show where Patti Lapone was being asked to carry a chest dominant quality. Thank you so much, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Way up past that classical head voice, Passaggio. I do thank him, though, because this was a, a very big order for her. She was not trained specifically to make sounds like that. So it's a different story now because high belting is the order of the day. Mm-hmm. It is still challenging for women. Voice rehab specialists <laughs> are still dealing with injuries from overuse, misuse, those kinds of things, because it's extreme. But when you get the balance right, it's all possible. Oh, by the way, this I haven't even mentioned men. I'm talking about women all the time. Do you know, I was, I was doing a workshop not long ago in Annapolis, I think. I can't remember. Washington, maybe. And I asked the, the group that, that were there, that I asked the audience, what they thought was the most difficult show on Broadway for singers and what created the most potential for injury. What do you think they said? If you were talking about the actual shows, I definitely would say Jersey Boys. Okay. Okay. Well, Particularly then Frankie Valley. Absolutely. I would say Nessa in Wicked in the Broadway production because she's on a rake and she's trying to hold herself in the wheelchair. Yeah. The rake, the physical, the physicalization of those roles. And all, I, I agree. And Elphaba also because she has to do that leaning and she has to be up in that high uh, eagles thing. Evan Hansen. Evan Hansen. In Dear Evan Hansen. Very, very demanding role. Yeah. You have to be so, um, so on top of technique for these roles and checking in all the time. So we're right. I agree yeah. with you. And then um, the other one, School of Rock. The Hard. Yep. Jack Black yep. character Jack in Black. School of Rock. Yep. Yeah. So there you have, you know, constantly back and forth. And I think those may be the hardest ones. Let me think what's on Broadway now. Mean Girls? Tough. You have to I haven't seen think Mean about Girls yet, so I don't know about that. It's all that yeah. very high mixed belting. High belting. Mm-hmm. Right. They're all defying gravity now. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah. I, anyway, I was surprised by the answer, and I'm going to tell you. It was Jersey Boys. It has to do with the rapid registration changes. Rapid registration changes. So, you definitely have to feel that balance and be aware of the the easiest way to make those huge resonance, resonance registration adjustments going through from that high, you know, mixed falsetto, down into chest, back, 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 back. Girls are doing it all the time too, women. So basically, I thought it was Elphaba. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be Elphaba. I have uh, students who've gone out with Avita and Elphaba, and Elphaba seems to be the harder role. So I don't know. But there are roles that you ha- carry such an emotional wallop, right, that you have to you have to really be able to tolerate how much that takes from you emotionally and still stay healthy. So we're taking a very definitely currently a gender neutral approach, even though we did say Jersey Boys, it's still we're in terms of where the voice balance, the main voice balance has to happen going through, you're thinking G4 and up. G4 to D5 is where all that belting happens for men and women. So we just for men, it's the very top of the range. Women, it's right smack dab in the middle. Mm-hmm. So we have to, but we're doing the same stuff. And cross-training yeah. applies to both same principles, regardless of size of larynx. So this brings, you know, there's a whole subject of what's happening with um, non-binary 
working with uh, transgender, transsexual singers is a big subject now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is a constant challenge to keep voice and body in balance because the the performance schedules are insane and Broadway doesn't doesn't cut any quarter. It's just eight shows a week. You got to do it. Right. And what are some of the most common vocal issues among today's music theater singers that you see? So I want, I don't know if you have seen this because you probably work with all ages, mm-hmm. but it seems to me from my experience, I mean, I, I certainly encounter those traumatic things, hemorrhagic polyp or something like that I've encountered and certainly nodules and sometimes cysts. But what I'm sensing, what I have sensed looking at the history of this, is some pathologies probably after that, that show up later probably incubate when performers are developing the habits in high school and even earlier because that's when behaviors, that's when girls use their voices for attention, guys start guarding or protecting voices, whatever, those those habits start early and those problems can show up when they enter college because they're so energetic. And so I think one of our jobs when we're dealing with 18-year-olds is to, is to encourage healthy voice use at that very early stage before they get into an HO-a-week schedule that's going to just trash them. So when we had 18-year-olds who were auditioning, we debated whether it was wise to take them in, but we thought if we don't take them in, they're going to be in worse shape. So if they had what we felt was a really commercial, viable talent, we would take them in. And usually those nodules resolve because nodules will, usually, and they had a gift they could carry with them. Overuse is the toughest thing, though. And I I just, you know, the experience that I have, I don't know what Joan would say or you would say, is you just got to call out of a show. You got to call out of a show and cost yourself the money. It's not worth it's not worth the price. One of the main differences I see between good and great is the confidence to call out mm-hmm. when you need to. I agree. All of the greats. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who's ever won a Tony is probably pretty good about recognizing when they need to take you a break bet. and they are willing to call out without worrying about any repercussions. And that's one of the things I tell a lot of my clients when I know that they need a break. It's so true. And your life and your career. And I think it's really critical to have the confidence to do that. Mm -hmm. I do. So I'm going to move on to what I call my rapid fire questions. Mm -hmm. So these are just questions. I call them rapid fire, but usually rapid fire is like question, answer, question, answer. But Actually, it's just the questions I ask in every episode. (laughs) What is some advice that you would want to give to an aspiring performer? I would say to trust themselves. Self-acceptance is key. Mm. And I have one more thing to say because this question was asked of me once before. And I remember saying, you are your instrument. You would treat a Stradivarius with care and respect. There is no Stradivarius as precious as you are. Mm What has been your greatest professional achievement? Well, I have to say the growth of Penn State's musical theater program and the development of that degree in voice pedagogy. It's been a source of great personal and professional satisfaction. Watching graduates of both programs move into the world as confident artists and kind humans capable of recognizing their good fortune and paying it forward is all I could ever have hoped for. 
And what about your greatest professional setback? I would have to put an S on that word, Christine. (laughs) Any professional setbacks I have had in my career have been the result of losing faith in my own ability. Mm. Wow. I'm writing it down. (laughs) That resonates so much with me. I know. It's true for all of us, isn't it? (laughs) And it's what we have to encourage them. You are just, you are enough. You know this. It's hard though. It's hard. What do you wish you would have learned sooner? To accept myself, (laughs) to tolerate my own limitations in order to be able to share what is best in me. I still have to work on this. Exclamation point. (laughs) Great. If listeners would like to learn more about you, Mary, how do they do that? How do they learn about you? How How can they connect with you? Where should they go? It's pretty easy. <laughs> it's, I'm very easy to get in touch with. I have a website, belcantocanbelto.com, and I can be contacted through that. And I'm always, because of what I said about this community of sharing, this mentorship, which goes all directions, I am open to carrying the conversation forward with actors and teachers so we can learn from each other. Great. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining me and for talking to me about vocal pedagogy and cross-training. It's been such a joy to talk with you, as always, and I am so grateful that you came and talked with me on my podcast. Thanks, and congratulations on your podcast. What are you calling it, by the way? Is it Visceral Voice? Mm -hmm, The Visceral Voice. I love it. (laughs) Love it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like us, tell your colleagues, your students, and your friends, subscribe, write a review, and find us on Facebook at Life Light Massage. You can also check out my website at lifelightmassage.com. Join me in two weeks for a talk with one of the leading Broadway voice teachers and speech language pathologists, my friend, Tom Burke.